thank you for that. So there are just a few more announcements before we start. You want to take just a few more announcements before we start. Um, here, if you guys saw one of these out front, this is what we call CBR. CBR is a community Bible reading plan. So our church, our heart is to help you guys get in the Bible more. We want to help you guys read the Bible in a way that's not intimidating, right? When you open the Bible, you're usually freaked out. It's like, okay, it's such a thick book. Where do I start? Well, we have a plan for you in the first few pages. And it divides the plan up by each day for the rest of the year. And it's only two chapters a day. It'll take 10 minutes a day. Not only that, we provide you with a section here where you can journal through that particular passage that you read. So I think it'll be a good opportunity for you to not only study the word, which is a good thing to do, but as you journal, you're actually letting the word study you, which is a very good thing, very good exercise to you for, for, for the word to analyze you and your own heart and your own life. So I encourage you to pick that up. Uh, this was uh, not free to make, so if you, have, if you want to donate, whatever you want, uh, just give it to the front desk person as, as you take one of these, okay? But please take them, and please, um, I think it'll be, it'll be good for you to guys to go do that. All right, guys, we're going to um, begin with our sermon. Before that, let me also tell you the sermon series that we're going to be doing until the end of December. There's two sermon series. One is a series on Galatians, the book of Galatians, the Bible. We're going to go through the whole book. And each week, we're going to study one verse. Let me say we're going to study a chunk of verses, okay? We're going to do a whole bunch of them, probably 9, 10, 11, 12 verses, whatever makes sense for that time. But we're going to go through the whole book so we get the Word of God in context. Um, and also, another sermon series we're going to do is called A Doctrine for the Heart. And we named it that way specifically because when people think about biblical doctrine, they often just think black, boring, academic, not for me. That's for the smarty pants Christians, right? And we're trying to help you see that, no, all the Bible is for every Christian. And that we want to help you see that doctrinally heavy passages can not only affect the mind, but it also should affect the heart. And when it does that, it should affect our hands and our feet as we move out and worship God in our everyday lives, Monday to Sunday. So we're going to try and intertwine those two uh, sermon series, and that will take us to the end of December. All right? Sounds good. We're supposed to do the, uh, the, the reading of the Word of God before this, but if anyone asks you, I'll invite you up now so you can do the reading of the Word of God for our sermon today. Um, our sermon today will be taken from Galatians 1, verse 1 to 10. Thus says the Lord, Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, there, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray before we enter into our sermon. Father, again, we beg you that you reveal yourself and your word to us, that we may hear not 
the words of any pastor or any man, but we would ultimately hear your word as you have given us in your scripture. And that this time would be used to clarify it, not to muddy it up, not to confuse it. Father, thank you. And as we talk about some of the harsh things, some of the rude and mean things, seemingly, that Paul is saying in this passage, help us get a better understanding of where Paul is coming from and where you're coming from, uh, so that we may worship and love this true gospel, thus worship and love you more. Jesus, let me pray. Amen. Friends, the Bible tells us that the main issue of all of our problems, yours and mine included, began when man made life all about themselves and less about God. All of our problems. It started when man made life more about themselves, more about ourselves, than it is about God and his glory. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that's pretty much what they did. Like we often do when we disobey God, right? That's what we're doing. We're telling God that, God, I'm going to decide what's right. I'm going to make the rules for my own life. I'm going to make life about pleasing and serving myself rather than and apart from your glory. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that this way of thinking and living not only broke man's relationship with God, but it also distorted all of life. And, friends, I want to help us see today in our passage that this is what Paul is talking about. This same heart issue of making life all about ourselves and less about God is what has also distorted the gospel of Christ in Galatia at that time. And I propose to you is what continues to distort the gospel of Christ in our culture today. The gospel simply means good news. When the Bible talks about the gospel, it's talking about the good news of how sinful people like us can be forgiven and reconciled with God so we can have an eternal relationship with him. And our passage says that there's only one true gospel. There's only one good news of how sinful man is to be reconciled to God, despite the existence of many false ones out there. And friends, if the Bible is true, if the Bible is true, that there is a God, and that we in our sin have been separated from him, and that we need to find our, back, our way back to him, then there's no greater task in your life right now than to figure out which gospel, out of all the gospels out there, is in fact the true gospel. There's no greater task in your life, because it has huge implications in our lives today and for eternity. So let's pay close attention to our passage as we learn what the Bible says and hope that we can differentiate the true gospel from its counterfeits. We have three points today. First, God's gospel is preached by God's apostles. Second, God's gospel points to God's glory. And third, God's gospel embraces sinful people. God's gospel is preached by God's apostles, point to God's glory, embraces sinful people. All right, first point. Now, the first two points is going to be kind of long, but the third point will be really short. So when it's 35 minutes in and we're just starting our third point, you'll be okay. Okay? We'll, we'll be out in about 30 to 40 minutes. All right. Let me give you a brief context of where Paul is at in this time and age. Okay? So Paul has just got recently done planting a bunch of churches in this region called Galatia. And these churches were doing just fine. They are great. Until a group called the Circumcision Group came into this region and started preaching a false gospel. The gospel they're preaching is this. That man can be forgiven and reconciled with God if they obey all the Old Testament laws. And, which includes, all the men being circumcised. Paul says, this gospel is a false gospel. Which you would think would be quickly followed by all the men of the time saying, Amen. But it wasn't. 
They actually thought that this was a true gospel. They thought that this was the way I can get back to God. This is the way they thought their sins can be paid for. And Paul is reminding the churches in Galatia that that's not the true good news of the Bible. This, what I'm preaching, is the gospel. And the first thing he does in his attempt in authenticating his message up against theirs is this. Paul, an apostle. He persuades them by saying that I'm an apostle. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So why does he feel the need to remind them that he's an apostle in his attempt to authenticate his gospel against theirs? Now, apostle is a weird word, and a lot of you are just like, oh, apostle, here we go. We're going to talk about apostle for 20 minutes. No, we're not. But I think we do need to talk a little bit about it. Because Paul tells us this is one of the ways in how we can know which gospel is true and which isn't. The true one is preached by all the apostles. And anything else opposite or contrary to it is false. So stick with me now just a little bit as we talk about the whole apostle thing. All right? So apostles, along with prophets in the Bible, hold a really important role. The Bible says that God has in a special way revealed himself and his gospel to all of mankind through apostles and prophets. Let me prove to you in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. This is Paul. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 2 Peter 3. Now you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your Again, prophets, apostles. Ephesians 2. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of what? Apostles and prophets. Apostles and prophets, over and over and over again, the Bible says God has revealed himself and his gospel to all of mankind through the apostles and the prophets. And anyone else preaching a gospel different from theirs is preaching a false gospel, such as a circumcision group. And because his apostleship validates his message, Paul, therefore other gospels are false. Now, here's a big question that you all should be asking. How do we know that Paul isn't just straight up lying about his apostleship? How do we know he's not just making this up? Like a lot of people today claim to be apostles, right? Is everybody that claimed to be apostles actually biblical apostles? Well, let's look at the Bible to answer this. Let's not come up with our own answers, all right? And lucky for us, since the role of apostleship is a really important role, the Bible tells us the qualifications of apostleship, all right? Now, I know this can be tedious, but I want to ask you to stick with me for five minutes. That's all I ask. Just five minutes. We're going to talk about this whole apostle thing. Now, that five minutes is going to feel like an hour. It's not. It's five minutes. And in the middle of it, you're probably going to think, why are we going through all this? Which I kind of feel that way, too, as I wrote this. But trust me, if you stick with me in five minutes, at the end, we're going to see why it matters. Okay? This is the biblical qualifications of apostleship. One, an apostle is someone who has been appointed by Jesus Christ. Two, an apostle is someone who is an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Appointed by Jesus Christ, has seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, and consistently preached the gospel of Christ. Okay? I'm going to show you where that is in the Bible. Five minutes, starting now. Alright. First, an apostle, personally appointed by Jesus Christ. Luke 6, verses 13 to 16. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. 
See, he named it. We, I can't um, by myself say that I'm an apostle. It's not a self-appointed role. God, Jesus appoints who's apostle and who's not. Let's, let's, let's see the name. Simon, who we named Peter, and Andrew and his brother, and James and John, and Philip, Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called a zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. See, all of them were named by Jesus. Whose name don't you see here? Paul. Okay, was he lying? No. Paul was still an apostle. He was just appointed by Jesus at a different time. Okay, we'll go through this. He was appointed in Acts chapter 9 when he was converted. Some of you might know the story. Paul's name before he was Paul was Saul, right? And he was a really sinful guy. He was a bad guy. Arguably worse than us. He would kill Christians. He would actually lead whole movements that would persecute the church at that time. In Acts chapter 9, in the road of Damascus, um, the Lord Jesus appeared to him and converted him, revealed him the gospel, renamed him from Saul to Paul. And then at the end of chapter 9, you see a guy named Ananias sent by God to meet Paul. Um, and God told Ananias this. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And later in that chapter, we see Ananias appointing Paul as an apostle. Jesus, through Ananias, appointed Paul as an apostle. All right, first qualification. Second qualification. An apostle must have physically seen, or must have seen, the resurrected Jesus Christ. Where did I get that in the Bible? All right, let's prove it. First, Acts chapter 1. After Jesus just got done telling the people the Great Commission, his office the Great Commission, he sent it to heaven. Acts chapter 1, the disciples got together and they talked about a person that needs to replace Judas. Okay, Judas is a guy that betrayed Jesus, right? And we need to replace this person. We need to replace this apostolic office. Okay? And um, listen to what they said in Acts chapter 9. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Let another take his, off Let another take his office. Now, listen to what they said as a qualification of the person that has the right to take Judas's office as an apostle. One of these men, Acts chapter 1, verse 22, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They must witness the resurrection of Jesus to be an apostle. You can't just claim it for yourself, all right? So when did Paul meet the second qualification? Well, in Acts chapter 9, same, same chapter in the book of Acts. All right, let's continue the story. Trust me, two more minutes. I know it feels like an hour. Two more minutes. We're almost there. Um, after Ananias uh, was appointed by God to, to appoint uh, Paul as an apostle, Acts 9, 17, this is the continuation of that story. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 9 is where Paul met the second qualification of apostolicity. I think that's a word. All right? So, first one, have to be appointed by Jesus, check, chapter 9. Second one, have to have seen the resurrected Jesus, check, chapter 9. Um, now, we know that Paul was not appointed in the same way and time as the other, apostle, other apostles were. So, let's read this one last verse. One more minute. One last verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul saying, okay? And that he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Again, the theme, Jesus appearing to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I, am because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So we conclude the qualifications of apostleship, Paul meeting those qualifications, 
and him going to the church in Galatia saying, I'm an apostle, my gospel is preached by me and all the other apostles, and anything else separate from that is not from God, it's from man. That's what Paul is saying. There's one gospel. Okay, now, five minutes up. All right, continue. Now, why did I go through all that? Why did I have to take that five minutes and explain to you the qualification of apostleship and Paul meeting that qualification? Because it means two things for us today. One, there can no longer be any apostles today, biblically speaking. There could be many great preachers. There could be many kind, influential leaders, but not biblical apostles as defined in Scripture. Two, if a person is teaching something that is contrary to the gospel God has revealed to all of mankind through his apostles in the scripture, it is a false gospel. Look at the Bible's words. That's what it's saying. Okay? And we want to point this out, not because we're annoying, nitpicky people. Some of us might be. I might be. But we're not doing it because of that, hopefully. But because of this. When false apostles and false teachers arise, false gospels appear. And history has shown that false teachers and false apostles often arise anywhere in the world, but more likely in places where biblical literacy is still low. Like in Galatia in Paul's time, and like in our beloved Indonesia. And friends, if this is unaddressed, the vital message of the gospel, the good news of how sinful man is to be reconciled with the Heavenly Father, will be distorted. And if such an important message does truly exist, is not the protection of this message worth giving our whole lives to? Paul in this text reminds us, and reminds the churches in Galatia, no matter how influential a pastor is, no matter how magnetic a leader is, no matter how charming a preacher is, no one, and he means absolutely no one, has the authority to preach a gospel that is different than what he has revealed in the scripture through his apostles. And friends, unfortunately, we do live in a time and place where Christianity has been shaped more by influential, magnetic, and charming people more than it has been by the Word of God. Look at verse 9, verse 8 to 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. No one is above the message. No pastor, no apostle, nor angel. There's one gospel. There's one good news of how sinful man is to be reconciled to God. So, what is this gospel? What is this message of how sinful man can be redeemed and reconciled to God? Let's move on to our second point and see the distinction of this gospel. Alright, point number two. God's gospel point to God's glory. In this point, I want to direct our attention to the true gospel that Paul preaches. We'll see it in our text later. And also see how all the other apostles preach the same gospel in the sense that all the other, the main things of that gospel is preached by all the other apostles. Okay? And we're going to compare this true gospel with the false gospels out there. Alright? But first, let me take a quick detour. Because when I first read this text, Paul's words and tone and intensity kind of shut me down from his message. It did. When I read those words, let them be cursed, it's like, gosh, Paul, really? That's pretty harsh. It kind of distracted me from the message, and I'm sensing the intensity of what Paul is saying could distract some of us here as well. So in light of that, 
I want to take a quick detour. Okay, we'll go back to our text. But I want to help us see where Paul is coming from. And that he's actually not being cruel at all. He's not being mean at all. This is, this is what I mean. All right. During one of my visits last year uh, in Indonesia, before I, my wife and I landed here for good, I was invited to talk at this Christian, Christian radio station. So I said, all right, why not? I went there, did the interview, and we talked about false gospels, interestingly, at that time. Specifically, we talked about one of the false gospels, the prosperity gospel. The gospel that teaches that if you obey God, he will bless you financially and medically, which is not the good news that the Bible teaches. And in the middle of our discussion in, in this radio thing, a caller called in from the outside, and on air, he said to us, that this is his words, look, I get all your theological reasoning, but why are you being so cruel and unnecessarily restrictive to these people? If this is what they believe, then just let them believe it. Doesn't Christianity teach us to love everyone, including people who believe these kinds of things? Doesn't it? It absolutely does. I agree with him. Christianity does teach us to love them. But let me ask you this. Is loving them means just, does it mean just letting them believe whatever they want? I would say that's actually unloving to them. Let me explain, okay, a few more minutes. Every time you and I interact with somebody else in a loving and kind way, we always base that interaction in a belief system that we have. Here's what I mean. If I believe that touching fire with my bare hands will hurt, if that's my belief system, I will therefore, based upon that belief system, talk to my daughter, Elena, and warn her, prevent her from touching fire from my bare hands, with her bare hands. See, my loving interaction with her is based upon a belief system I have about touching fire. Does that make sense? So, if you believe what I believe about the consequences of touching fire, my words to you will sound as loving and kind. But if you don't believe what I believe about touching fire, then my words to you will sound as cruel and unnecessarily restrictive. You see, the difference isn't that you're, you're, you're loving and I'm mean. The difference is in our foundational belief of the consequences of touching fire. You see what I'm saying? Now, if you believe what I believe about the consequences of touching fire, you will join me in warning my daughter from touching fire, even if it upsets her. Because if you truly love my daughter, then you will love her well-being more than you love her opinion of you. Given that you've communicated that truth to her in a reasonable, kind, and loving way. Second example, just to drive this in further. If you know anything about me, you know that I love Martabak more than life itself. <laughs> I really do. So don't buy me Martabak, anybody. But my wife rightly believes that if I eat too much Martabak, it's not good for me. That's her belief system, and it's a good one, and she should stick with it. So based upon that belief system, she prevents me from eating too much martabak. She warns me against eating too much martabak. See, her loving interaction with me is based upon her belief system of the truth about martabak excess. If you believe what she believes, you will also join her in warning me about eating too much martabak. But please let me some. If you don't believe what she believes, then her words to me will sound as cruel and unnecessarily restrictive. See, the difference isn't that you're kind and my wife is unloving. The difference is in your foundational belief of martabak excess. If you believe what she believes, you'll join her in warning me, even if it upsets me. Because if you truly love me, you're gonna love my well-being more than you love my opinion of me. Given that you've given, you've communicated that truth to me in a kind of loving way. Now, back to the text. Paul in verse six says there's no other gospel. Verses seven and nine, he says, 
Um, the people that preach other gospels, let them be cursed, because it's not true. Now, he might sound cruel and unnecessarily restrictive to us, but I want to say that it's not that we're loving and Paul is mean. I would like to propose to you the difference might be in our financial belief of the gospel. Do we truly believe there's only one way sinful man can get to God? If we do believe that, then Paul's words will sound as loving and kind. But if our foundational belief system is different than Paul's, then his words, his warning to the Galatian church, will sound as cruel and unnecessarily restrictive. You see, if you believe what Paul believes, then you would join Paul in warning people against false gospels, even if it upsets them. Because if you truly love them, you must love their well-being more than you love their opinion of you. Given that you've communicated that truth to them in a reasonable, kind, and loving way. Now, let's continue in this act of love by seeing what Paul says the true gospel is and compare it to the false gospels out there. All right? In Galatia, there is one major false gospel, the circumcision group gospel, that if you obey God's commandments, you can be saved. But in our culture today, I would propose there's three major false gospels. The first is the legalistic gospel. The legalistic gospel preaches that, similar to the circumcision group, if we obey God, we will be saved. If we don't obey God, we will not be saved. Our salvation is dependent upon our personal obedience to the laws of God. That's the legalistic gospel. That's a false gospel. The second one is a hyper-grace gospel. The hyper-grace gospel says that because Jesus died for our sins, our obedience to the law is no longer needed. We don't have to really obey God anymore because, because he's forgiven us in the cross. We can do whatever we want. That's, that's you know, extremely speaking. That's what the hyper-grace gospel teaches. The third one is a prosperity gospel that we talked about. That the good news of Christianity is that if we obey God, he will bless us with success and health. Okay? Those are the three we're going to talk about. We're going to pin it against the true gospel that Paul reveals in our passage. All right? The big three, legalistic, hyper-grace, and prosperity gospel. This is the one and only gospel. Look at our passage, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. Let's pin those three against this one. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in the, in the passage we read just now. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Let me repeat it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is it. This is what Paul says is the one and only gospel. This is how sinful people like us can get back to God. All right, so let's get a better understanding of this gospel as we pin it with the three. First, the legalistic gospel. It teaches that man can be reconciled with God by our good behavior. Simply put, if we obey God, we'll be forgiven. If we fail in disobeying God, we won't be forgiven. This is clearly different than what Paul teaches in verses 3 to 5. Look at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. How does Paul say we're saved? The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. We're not saved by our moral behavior. We are not saved by somehow doing all the commandments God has commanded us to do. We are saved because God himself died on the cross for our sins. He's referring to Jesus Christ when he was fully, completely, faithfully done, taking all the punishment that was meant to us on the cross, and we bear our, our guilt no more. His sacrifice is what saves us, not our morality. 
His sacrifice of what reconciles us to God, not our own personal record of obedience. Think about it real quick with me. How man-centered is this legalistic gospel? It doesn't give glory to God. It's very man-centered, actually. If we're able to save ourselves, then who gets the credit and who gets the glory for our salvation? We do. Who does Paul say in verses 4 to 5, in, in verses 4 in the beginning of verse 5, who does Paul say is the one that gets the glory for our salvation? Our God and Father to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. The applause for our salvation does not belong to us. It belongs to God alone. The glory does not belong to us. It belongs to God alone. Second, the hyper-grace gospel teaches because Jesus died for our sins, we no longer have to be concerned about being obedient to the law. This is also contrary to the gospel Paul preaches. Look at verse 4 with me. What does Paul say is a, is a purpose in which we're saved? Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The life of a person who truly has been redeemed by the gospel of Christ will increasingly be distinct from the present evil age. When Jesus died for us, he didn't free us from obedience. He freed us so that we can obey. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ that led him to die on the cross for us does not diminish our duty to obey. It detonates a desire for it. The hyper-grace gospel is not in accord with Paul's gospel. It makes the end goal of our salvation forgiveness of our sins. It's not. We'll talk about that later. All right? Now, let's talk about the prosperity gospel. Did I lose it? Nope, it's right here. All right. The prosperity gospel, it teaches that if we obey God, he will bless us with success and health. This is also contrary to the gospel of Paul. Look again in verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins... To deliver us from the present evil age. Okay? Who gave himself for our sins? Jesus did. To deliver us from what? From our sins and the present evil age. What does the prosperity gospel teach us that we're delivered from? Not from our sins. Not from the present evil age. But from poverty and sickness. Paul says, no. You're delivered from much more than that. You're delivered from your sins and the present evil age. The ultimate good news of the Bible is not that if we obey God... He's going to give us money and health so that we can have financial comfort and medical ease. The ultimate good news of the Bible is that even in our sinfulness, even in our stubborn disobedience, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8 says, our gracious God gave us not money, but himself. So that we can live not just for an extra few years on earth, but forever with him. That's the true gospel. Don't be so quickly satisfied by the prosperity gospel. It's not enough. He gave us so much more. You see how the prosperity gospel is also man-centered? It doesn't make God our Father, like Paul says in verses 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God, who? Our Father. Look at verse 4. According to the will of our God and Father. No, no. The prosperity gospel does not make God our Father. It makes God kind of like our ATM. If we push the right buttons, cha-ching. Right? How man-centered is that? The purpose of this false gospel is not to give God, God glory, as Paul says in verse 5. It is to use God as someone to bargain with for the advancement of our own personal agendas. Now, 
Remember the introduction I said, everything was distorted, even the gospel was distorted, when man made life more about themselves and less about God. This is what I mean. All false gospels are ultimately more about man and less about God. Let's go through again, real quickly, the legalistic gospel. It makes salvation all about man's effort. We get the applause for our salvation. We get the glory. We get the credit. And it's not about God. It makes everything about man and less about God. The hyper-grace gospel makes salvation about man's freedom and not God's fatherly rule. Prosperity gospel makes salvation all about the comforts we can get out of God and not the glory that God can get out of man. All the gospels have been distorted because we have wanted to please ourselves, because we wanted to make life all about us and less about God. Verse 10 now makes a little bit more sense, doesn't it? Look at it again with me. Paul says, after he preached the gospel, this is what Paul says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Makes more sense now, doesn't it? Distorted gospels happen because we make it all about us and less about God. Is our gospel man-centered or is our gospel God-glorifying? Now, Paul didn't come up with this gospel on his own. Remember, the gospel is preached by all the apostles. Let's talk about three of them, okay? Again, we're going to quickly go through this. Um, we'll see three themes that Paul reveals in his gospel, also apparent in these other apostles as they preach the gospel, okay? Jesus is the hero of our salvation, not ourselves. His heroism, his salvation for us, will result in a desire to live holy lives, and it'll make God our Father. Those three themes. You'll see those things in other apostles. Okay, listen to the gospel that the apostle Peter preaches. Makes Jesus the hero, and it calls man to righteous living. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, which is the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Not so that we can live however the heck we want. By his wounds you have been healed, not by your own obedience, by his wounds. Listen to the gospel that Apostle Matthew preaches. Um, it makes you use the hero, and it calls men a servanthood. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are called to servanthood, and he is the one who has, ran who has become a ransom for our sin. Now, last one, the, the gospel that the Apostle John preaches. Makes Jesus the hero again and calls Christians to holy living as children of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Not as an excuse to sin. But if anyone does sin, which we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a perpetuation for our sins. Is this our gospel? Does our Christianity make Jesus the hero, or do we still think that we can be saved by our own morality, by our own religiosity, by our own good deeds? Is God the only one receiving glory from our gospel, or are we still trying to be the heroes of our own story? Is our gospel about God's glory, or is it a form of justification to do whatever the heck we want? Does our gospel make us desire God more, or does it make us desire success and comfort more? Does our gospel make God our Father, or does it make Him our ATM? Is our gospel man-centered, or is it God-glorifying? Now, 
you have to be careful. As we talk about false gospels, we don't want to think that only people out there struggle with it, right? Some of you might say that, not me, I'm a Reformed Christian. I don't believe in false gospels. Well, I'm Reformed too, that's good. But let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like God likes you or loves you less when you've committed sin? As if the way he feels about you is dependent upon your level of obedience. Have you ever felt that? Sure, I have. If so, then you, like me, struggle with the legalistic gospel. Has the forgiveness of God made you apathetic and lackadaisical about pursuing holiness? I have. If you have felt that, then you, like I do, struggle with the hyper-grace gospel. When something bad happens to you in life, have you ever asked yourself or God this question? What have I done to deserve this? If you have, then you, like I do, struggle with the prosperity gospel. You see, it's not people out there that struggle. Isaiah says everyone has turned their own way. We are all sinners. We have all distorted and rejected in our hearts and hearts the true gospel. Not just people out there. And this is a serious crime. Let's, let's look at verse 6, then we're going to jump to our last point. Verse 6 says that when you desert the gospel, you're deserting God himself. Listen to Paul. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. When you reject the gospel, you reject God. That is a big deal. Each of us have all, in our hearts and hearts, turned to our own ways. What hope is there then for us who continually are prone to abandon God and his gospel? With this concern, let's move on to our last and very short third point. God's gospel embraces sinful people. At this point of the sermon, we should be all a little bit troubled. How can sinners like us who continually abandon the gospel, who continually abandon God, embrace the true gospel, more or less be representatives of this gospel to the world. Well, as we study Paul's words, I want us to remind, her, remind us of Paul's past. Let's not forget about that. The person who wrote our passage, Paul, the person who so vigorously embraced this gospel of God, he was a horrible sinner. Remember? Like we said earlier, worse than you and I, so to speak. He's killed Christians. He's led movements of people to murder Christians. And the church of God. How can this horrible sinner write what he wrote? How can this horrible sinner embrace the gospel and represent it so vigorously in Galatia? And how can we do that today? Well, let me remind us of this. I think it's actually because Paul realizes he's such a sinner, that's what made him, that's what made the gospel mean so much more to him. You see, realizing that he's a sinner protected him from the false gospels. Let's Let's continue with this, and then we'll close, okay? It protects him from the legalistic gospel. If he realizes his own sin, how could such a sinner ever claim credit for his own salvation? See? Him realizing his sin protects him from the legalistic gospel. It protects him from the hyper-grace gospel. Because he realizes just how horrible he is. It makes it impossible for him to deny the responsibility that he is the one who put Jesus on the cross. As our hymn sings, it was my sin that held him there. It wasn't your sin, it wasn't their sin, it was my sin. 
that crucified Jesus. See, when he sees how much his sin has just cost Jesus, how could he ever lastadaisically last live in his sin again like nothing ever happened? See, realizing his sin protects him from the hyper-grace gospel. And it protects him from the prosperity gospel. Because he realizes just how horrible he is, and he saw what Christ has done to forgive him. It protects him from worshiping money and health over worshiping God. How could he worship money and health when he just saw the richest and healthiest being in the universe become poor and die for him? How could you worship money and health over him? Because he was such a sinner, it made him embrace the gospel even more. It made him want to represent the gospel even more to the world, and it protects him from all the false gospel. Do you feel like a sinner? Do you not feel like you're fit to embrace this gospel or more or less represent it to the city? Good. I'm right here with you, Paul says. Join the club. Broken people are exactly the kind of people that are fit to embrace and represent this gospel. I don't know where you are in your relationship with God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Maybe you've grown tired of all the Christian routines and it slowly becomes just a to-do list in your book. Sunday morning church, Thursday night, CG with Surya, who will give you good food. Um, reading the Bible every now and then. It's just become a routine, right? And somewhere in this lifeless cycle, you've forgotten that your relationship with Him has never been about how much of yourself you've given Him. But it has always been about how much of Himself He's given you. Let this gospel message encourage you and make you live it out more in the city. Or maybe your whole life you've been turned off by Christianity. Maybe you felt that I've never been good enough. I'm too sinful. I'm too uncommitted to give my life to Christ or whatever. I want you to very loudly hear God and his words to you this morning through Paul. If you want to have a relationship with him, if you want to become his child, your Christianity, your relationship with God will never, ever, ever, ever be based upon how much of yourself you've given him. But it will always forever be how much of himself he's given you. What is there to fear? It's not your righteousness, it's his. It's not your sacrifice, it's his. Let that detonate a fire in your heart to live for him. If you're here today, you feel like an awful sinner, God through Paul here is saying, cheer up, because you're actually a lot more sinful than you think you are. But in Christ, you are much more loved than you ever dared do. Be reconciled to him. Receive this forgiveness. Receive this true gospel. And begin in a breathtaking journey of making life all less about ourselves and more about God. Pray with me.